We're in week four of our series, The Good Work, and we're looking at what it means to not just live life, but to live life on purpose. That when Christ called us to uh, him, that he didn't just save us from our sins and give us an eternal home, that he recreated us. He made us into new beings, and those new beings have new purposes, and we've been commissioned by the Lord to go do great things. And we said those aren't a result, or those aren't to earn God's favor, but they're a result of God's favor. We don't do good works to get God's favor. Because we have God's favor, we're now impassioned to go do incredible things to change the world for God. And we've said over the last several weeks, if you've missed them, you can hop online to our podcast and and check them out. That's not an easy job. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for anybody who thinks uh, that this is going to be a a fun and easy run. It will be fun, but it probably will be difficult. However, it's totally worth it because we believe that the message of Jesus has come to, to take back lives that have been stolen by darkness. Your neighbors, your friends, your families, people you love, we believe Jesus has called them to himself, and we've been invited to be a part of that. And so the last couple weeks, we've been unpacking what that might look like for you, your particular passions, what it is that God has wired you to do, the specific sphere. And so we said that there's going to be some roadblocks. We worked through that in week two. In week three, we said it really comes down to willingness. Are we willing to do whatever God would call us to do, or is there a boundary line? And, And it can be easy to walk away from week three thinking, yeah, I'm willing, However, willing is just the starting point. (laughs) Willing is not the end. Willing is where we just start to begin in our pursuit of God. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Because as you start down this track of following God and pursuing God and impacting his fear, whether it's at school or wherever that may be, we need to define what it is to win. Because you're going to get down this road and you're going to start wondering, am I even winning? Now, you're probably not going to phrase it that way. You'll probably phrase it. Maybe you even heard yourself say this from time to time. It just doesn't feel worth it anymore. It seems like there's so much effort and so little. It's just so difficult. Now, I just, don't, I just don't know if that's what we're supposed to be doing. Anybody ever relate to that feeling? Now, what that is, is I don't know if I'm winning or not. So then how do you define a win? How does God define a win? Do we use the same metrics that the world uses? Do we define it as earthly success? Or is there a whole different set of metrics that God defines a win off of. Now, as I read the scriptures, and you can read them for yourselves and see this to be true or not, God is far more interested in who you are than what you do. He's far more interested in our character, and I would say the metric that we're held to most is a matter of character, not of competency. So it doesn't matter how big the church is, there's character. It doesn't matter how grand the business is if there's bad character. There's this different metric. We have it this way. See, who you are while we do the good work, is far more important than the good work we actually do. And if you want to define this by the world's success, it's totally flipped. It doesn't matter. Just get it done. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Just win. Well, that's not how we define according to God's standards. And if we're not careful, what can happen is we can begin to feel successful in things that God has called us to do when really we're failing. We could grow a huge church, but not be who God has called us to be. And it wouldn't be So what we want to do today is really unpack what are some key elements to be the people that God wants to do a great work through. Because we we want to win. (laughs) We want to get to the end and say, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, Nehemiah really helps us see that very clearly, uh, what that is. We don't have time to go through the whole book. Um, I would 
highly, highly encourage you, if you want to make some waves for the kingdom of God and you want to understand what it is to be a, a man and woman of God who leads the charge against darkness, read the book of Nehemiah. It is a wonderful case study on leadership and character and integrity. So we're going to look at kind of a bunch of passages. We're going to jump around a bit. But I want to start with the character of Nehemiah, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, because what is revealed in chapter one, right from the get-go, is that he knows that what is staring him down is far bigger than him. He knows there's absolutely no way he's ever going to accomplish what God has called him to do without God, which is why he starts off praying right in chapter one. See, what's true of Nehemiah has to be true of our lives. If we're going to push back darkness and, and reach to greater things than we're capable of, we need to start by humbly recognizing our need for God. We need to humbly recognize our need for God. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll do this eventually. You'll try your level best. You'll work really, really hard. You might even get yourself to the end of your rope and then finally go, okay, God, I need you. Like it's naturally in us to want to be independent from God because it strikes our pride. But Nehemiah, right from the beginning, says, oh, thank God, I need, I need you. Which is why he starts praying. Like how many of you, if you're being honest, tend to find yourself waist deep in a mess before you look up for help? Uh, uh, yeah, okay. Half of you are being honest. The other half of you, you're not even admitting it. All right, that's fine. We'll work through. The Lord knows. Anyway, like, like not even with spiritual things. I'm talking about physical things. I had to move something real heavy a while back. And I went and I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move this thing. I'm not going to make my wife do this with me. Nope, I'm going to do it myself. So I'm staring at this thing. It's like a bowl when they're staring at that red cloth. Just like, just, I was fixated. And it was taunting me. It was like, you're not as strong as you once were. Those skinny jeans don't look so skinny anymore. Like I felt personally attacked in this moment. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely moving this thing. And I yanked and yanked and yanked and I moved it like half the distance I needed to and pretended to do something else while I recovered and came back and moved it the rest of the way and realized I'm at that age now where I feel it three days later and I was humbled. But why? Why does it take us that long in really important things to finally ask the God of the universe for help? What is it? See, Nehemiah understood that everything worth doing in his life had to be powered by prayer. Every accomplishment in Nehemiah was bookcased by a prayer. Because he knew, if I was going to do great things for the kingdom of God, I needed the power of God, and I only get the power of God by prayer. So chapter 1, before he even begins, he needs God's prayer or God's power to dream. So he prays, God, give me the vision. And he, he gets the vision from God. He knew he needed God's power to dream. And then before, while he's talking to the king in the middle of his prayer, literally desperately praying, God, give me the words to say, he knew he needed God's power to begin. Chapter 4, everybody's trying to stop his work and they're trying to get in his way and oppress him and taunt him and all of these things. And chapter 4, this is his prayer. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. They turn, turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Verse 5. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Do you realize what he just prayed in that prayer? That's a mean prayer. God, send them into captivity, and if you thought about forgiving their sins, just forget it. Just hold every sin against them. That's an angry prayer. See, but he knew what he was fighting against couldn't be won against flesh and blood. He was fighting against some spiritual powers. He knew he needed the power of God. Then in chapter 6, it gets even worse for him. 
So before it was just taunting. Now in chapter 6, if you read the whole chapter, we're going to read some of it. They've basically set a peace summit, the neighboring villages who are mad at him for rebuilding Jerusalem, a peace summit, which really was disguised as an assassination attempt. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4 here and see how he handles it. Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together." So the threats didn't work. So now they've moved to blackmail. (laughs) So uh, we heard that you're trying to revolt against the king of Persia, who's kind of your boss and kind of paid for this. So if you don't come meet with us, we're going to tell him. So now they're trying to blackmail him into a meeting so they can kill him. Interesting, isn't it? He just wants to do good for people in a hard spot. And yet, they're trying to kill him. This is what his reply is in verse 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your mind. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. And how does he respond? But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. I don't know when the last time somebody tried to blackmail and assassinate you was, but I have to wonder if that would have been my first move. I have to wonder if somebody threatened to blackmail me and assassinate me if I simply went, God, it's true. My hands are weak. The accusations are right. I'm running out of strength. Would you strengthen my hands? See, it leaves me with the question, where do you and where do I turn when we're overwhelmed? Alcohol? Mint chocolate chip ice cream? Favorite show on Netflix? Gossip, dumping it all on your spouse, burying yourself in work. No, I'm sure at some point, if you're like me, you you try several things before you remember that there's only one answer. (laughs) And I don't know why that is. I'm sure it's pride in my heart, where I run to a few solutions, and then I finally remember (laughs) there's only one solution to this. His name is Jesus, and he's told me through prayer, I can unleash the power of heaven on earth. We believe prayer is so important. So next week, we're actually kicking off a three-week series on prayer because I want to go to the right place. And if I'm pushing back against darkness, I'm going to feel overwhelmed. If you're really trying to live life for others in the service of God, you're going to feel this. And we have to go, all right, God, I don't have everything I thought I did. I humbly acknowledge I need you here. I want to go there. Help me go which you'll discover to be true, and I'm sure most of you know this, that if you're really trying to pursue the Lord and, and head in the right direction and follow him, that you'll give, be given all of these opportunities that I call off-ramps. So if you're headed on the road that God has for you, we have this on the screen here, forgive my terrible graphic design here. Um, they also didn't hire me for that job, so yeah, you're welcome. Anyway, if you're on the road to the purpose that God has for you, and you know, man, this is the character of who God has called me to be. This is the mission in which he has called me to accomplish. What you'll find over and over and over again in your life to be true is that there will always be these off-ramps. I know God has called me to this. However, this, 
I know God has really told me to be this person. However, this looks really shiny over here. What's interesting about off-ramps is that they almost always have a very long stretch before you get to the exit. So you can step out of the lane into the other one, and you have some time to turn that blinker back on and get back on the road. What do you call that? Call that grace. And God gives us tons of grace. However, what we're about to see in Nehemiah is that there is this point where when we step out of the lane or step out of who God has called us to be, we have to decide sooner or later, do I get back on the road or do I take this exit from the purpose that God has for my life? And the tricky thing is, is they're subtle. Let's see what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 6. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehabatah, whatever. <laughs> Seriously, sure, you got to shorten these names. Who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? I love this dude. He's got a spine on him. Just like me? You think, you think I'm going to run away? I love it. And he continues on. Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God did not send him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambla had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. There's something incredibly subtle here that if you're not familiar with the context, you could probably be easily missed. Um, so Nehemiah served under the king of Persia as a cupbearer, which means he also had close relations with the, with the queen. We see later on in the text, he's interacting with the queen. Um, well, almost every empire at the time, but especially the Persians, would not let a male be with the queen unless he uh, was a eunuch. And so if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your parents. If you're 50 and you still don't know, still ask your parents. I'm not answering that question for you. So um, they wouldn't be near the king. And so it's likely that he was a eunuch. So according to Jewish law he would not be allowed inside of the temple. It was a law that um, basically was sent out by the Lord that if you're a eunuch, you wouldn't be allowed into the inner courts of the temple. So what's happening here is they know this to be true about Nehemiah, and they say, hey, I know a safe haven, and it's inside the temple. If you run in the temple, you'll be safe. Well, they're going to kill him in there anyway, but it's more, it's more subtle than that. And he picks up on it in this last verse. He did it so that I would sin, because he knew it would be a sin for him to do that, that they would give him a bad name and discredit me. See, he had his lane. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew what was right and wrong. And what the enemy tried to do to him is what he tries to do to you is to get a subtle compromise and a subtle lane shift. God has called us to holiness. Yeah, but <laughs> my life's in danger. Like, really, who would have argued with him? You're about to be killed, and this is the only way you don't get killed. I think we'd understand. I think it, it would be a convenient sin. I think it would be an understandable sin. But Nehemiah said, no, 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 because if you can discredit me here, I've lost my platform for everything over there, which is why it's so important who we are when we try to do work for the Lord. Because earlier in a chapter, and we'll look at this in a few minutes, he stood against something that was incredibly unpopular. So they come back to say, give me your platform. And so, so this is the off-ramp that he had, was one of compromise. If you consider your life, how often and how many times are you tempted for a simple lane shift out of convenience? I mean, really and truly, everybody else is doing it. <laughs> really and truly, it's not that big 
of a deal. It's understandable, given your circumstances, that that's what you did see. But what happens is if we make enough of those, we end up changing the course of our character. And God called us there, but these choices pulled us there. See, now this one's active. And we get that, we feel that, we feel temptations, we, we all understand that. And, and Nehemiah refused because of his character. But what's interesting in chapter 5 is that there was a passive one that was probably even more tempting to him, and I'm sure is probably even more tempting to some of us. Let's flip back to chapter 5 and see the second off-ramp. Now the men and... Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and have to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet they have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So here, here's what's happening. When they returned from captivity, there was obviously wealth gap, as there is in any culture. And so the, the wealthy and the politicians and the rulers were oppressing the poor by saying, hey, we'll pay that bill for the king's tax, but now you, your field belongs to me. And so essentially they were charging a 1% interest uh, per month, which works out to about 12.7 over the year, which is less than your credit card is. Um, and the real reason why this was going untouched was because it was legal. It was totally legal under the Persian Empire. But the problem was it wasn't moral according to the scriptures. Because Deuteronomy chapter 23 laid out very clearly that no Jew was supposed to charge interest to another Jew. No brother was ever supposed to charge interest to another brother. You could lend, but it had to be free of charge. Now you could charge a foreigner interest, but you couldn't charge each other interest. So what you see here is the dilemma between legality and morality. Just because something's legal doesn't make it moral. Our benchmark for where we live our life as Christians is not what the world has approved, but what the Word of God has approved. And so there's a subtle cultural shift here because Nehemiah is being tempted by a sin that was becoming culturally approved. Everybody around them was perfectly okay with this. And in fact, nobody would have even questioned Nehemiah because everybody else was doing it. But he knew in his heart the passive, subtle compromise would have sent him on an off-ramp. He knew he had to stand with integrity. This is how he replies. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. What I find interesting about Nehemiah's anger with them is, do you not see that we have paid so much money to buy back our, Jews, our, our fellow brothers and sisters out of slavery? Nehemiah spent 12 years out of his own pocket buying as many of his Jewish brothers and sisters out of slavery from other nations only for them to come back and be enslaved by each other. He says, this is ridiculous. I think there's some gospel implication in there for us somewhere. The great cost to buy somebody back only to indebt them to ourselves again. But Nehemiah would not stand. And he accuses them and says, this is ridiculous. You're not allowed to do this. Stop it. And they knew it. They knew he was right. But how easy 
the shift would have been for him. See, if you're going to make waves for the kingdom of God and you're going to step into darkness, you're going to have to do something incredibly unpopular. You're going to have to courageously call other people around you to live with integrity. You're going to have to look at fellow brothers and sisters and say, hey, that's not the standard in which God has given us. Now, before you run across the street and confront your neighbor, this is not licensed to go confront non-believers. We're not told to go confront non-believers on sin. We're told to have helpful conversations and we enlighten them to the, the destruction of sin and the value of Jesus and how Jesus wants to rescue them from that. However, they don't know Jesus. And so if they don't know Jesus, I don't expect them to behave like they do. But Nehemiah is mad because he knows people who know the truth and they're not behaving the way they ought to. They know better. There's a, there's a passage in Proverbs that I think is, is helpful. 20, it's not on the screen. 26.17 says this. Like the one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel, not their own. So, so don't go run and just pick a fight. However, what Nehemiah does here is incredibly important. He says, we know better. <laughs> what are we doing? To put this in, in context, maybe because you're not familiar with selling fields and children, and that's good. That's Wonderful that we don't have to know that. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world do have to deal with that still, but not us. So let's put this in some context. Let's say you have a vision for a really healthy, thriving church. I don't know anybody who has that vision in this room, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kidding. We all want that. I want that. You know what's going to happen if you want to pursue that vision? You're going to have to deal with some culturally normative sins. And I don't mean the ones out there. I mean the ones in here. You want a healthy church? It means you're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations around gossip. You want to have a healthy church? You're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations around divisive speech. You want to have a healthy church? You're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations about favoritism and a whole bunch of other things. Now, you know what makes that really difficult? It's people that are called our friends do those things, (laughs) which means it'll probably be our friends we have to confront on those things. And that's no fun. Nehemiah had to confront his friends and say, that's not what we do here. That's not the standard that we have been given enough. Now, if we don't, what happens is one by one, we start to take the off-ramp. And I'm sure we all could list communities of believers where enough people started to take the off-ramp of compromise that eventually the whole mission moved off course. If you want to have a business or a work environment that's transformed by Jesus, and that's your vision, and that's an awesome vision, I bet you're going to have to have some really uncomfortable conversations with some Christians that you work with. Because maybe Monday through Friday, they act one way, and then they invite their friends to church uh, Saturday, and they're looking back at Monday through Friday going, those two don't add up. Well, that's an uncomfortable conversation because you're my friend, and I like you. But now we have to talk about this. Maybe you're going to have to talk to a brother or sister in Christ who spends more time on Facebook than they do actually at their job. Well, that's no fun. That's a culturally normative form of theft. Maybe your your vision is for the whole community to be reached for Jesus. You see where I'm going? What happens is that all of a sudden we can start to approve what we do based on our own unwillingness to walk into uncomfortable spaces. But what was true of Nehemiah needs to be true of you and I is that if we plan to jump into any of those conversations, we got to do a little little check in the mirror first. We got to make sure that what we're doing lines up with what we're asking others to do. So here's where Nehemiah goes in verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? We're going to park 
there. I love what he says here. <laughs> we know better. <laughs> we know, and we serve the God who we know sees all things. Who are we fooling? He says, shouldn't you have your own convictions to see this? And then I love how he hitches this. He says, to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. He says, don't give them grounds that they don't need. <laughs> they have enough to accuse us from. Don't, by the way you live, give ammunition to discredit your testimony. It says in verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards and olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. See, he was lending the same stuff, but he was refusing to charge interest. And what I love how he finishes this, is says it's not enough just for you to stop doing that. You gotta pay them back. A bold move from him. See, but Nehemiah wasn't willing to confront anybody on something he wasn't doing himself first. And if you're gonna make ways for the kingdom of God, you and I need to courageously live with integrity in all we do, or consistently live with integrity in all we do. That we don't get to be a different person from day to day. We don't get to ask something of someone out there and not be willing to do it ourselves. What was true of Nehemiah was that 12 years of faithfulness gave him the platform for this conversation. If he had walked in and said, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing, by the way, you're in sin, they would have laughed at him. They would have shut him out of there. But it was years into the process where Nehemiah had lived his life in such a way that his lifestyle was a confrontation before his words were ever a confrontation. That when people looked at what he was doing and how he was living his life, they were already confronted by it, which is why everybody was trying to kill him. Because they saw something, and when words became necessary, he used them. See, integrity leads the way in all that God wants us to do. Character leads the way in all that God wants us to do. For 12 years, he didn't take a governor's tax, which means he, he didn't get paid for his job. For 12 years, he worked for free. For 12 years, he bought as many Jews out of slavery as he could out of his own dollar. For, for 12 years, he literally paid the, the staff that he had working for him as his assistants out of his own pocket. For 12 years, he consistently called them to holiness and lived it himself. See, Nehemiah became the man that he wanted everybody else to become because he knew the wall was the least significant accomplishment of his life. The thing, the big project was the least significant thing because he had a vision for a rebuilt wall, but even bigger than that, he had a vision for a rebuilt people. And he knew that what they needed was to see somebody who walked the talk. Somebody who said, ah, I can get behind that guy because he chose to live his life all the way the same. See, who we are, while we do what God has called us to do, is far more important than what we actually do. So for you this morning, as you consider this conversation, where is it for you? Maybe, maybe you're doing awesome. That's great. Glory to God. Maybe you're in the part where you are become a little self-reliant. And it's time to pause and say, all right, God, I've become self-reliant. Here I am. I need help. I'm overwhelmed. The thing I'm staring down scares me and it's caused me to run some places that terrify me that I shouldn't go. I commit to pray for that. I commit twice a day. Say, God, I need your strength. I don't have what it takes. I'm here. Maybe for you, there's some conversations you need to have. Some sin in the camp, maybe in your family, maybe in your friend circles. Um, I, just this week, somebody was gossiping and I had to choke down my own sermon going, 
I don't want to confront this because you're my friend. I said, hey, ah, that's not a conversation we're going to have. We don't talk about people. We talk to people. So if you have a problem, you can go talk to them. I don't want to hear about it. When you've resolved it, I'd love to hear how well that went. But for now, conversation over. No, that's not fun. But we need to stay on the road that God has for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you did take the off-ramp. You have made some of those small moral compromises. Well, the good news is that when, when Christ found each one of us, we were already on the side of the road. We were already way off the off-ramp. And he invited us by his grace to take the on-ramp back in the mission that God has for us. The off-ramp isn't the end because there's an on-ramp with the Lord. And so maybe today is a time where you pause and say, you know what, I've made some of these compromises. God, would you forgive me? I return by your grace, and thankfully your grace has long off-ramps and quick on-ramps. And would you maybe today say, you know, God, I want to step back into what it is that you have for me because I want to be the person that you have called me to be, and I want to be a part of a church that is being the church that God has called it to be, and I want to make a difference because you made a difference in my life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let me come before you. Grateful that you lived the perfect life we couldn't. Grateful that it's not us people look to, it's you in us. God, I thank you for choosing willing, imperfect people. And I thank you for making it incredibly clear what the road is. God, I pray that you would put a distaste in our mouth, in our mouth for the off-ramps that we would see them for what they are, the small, subtle compromises that sneak into our life, God. Let us see them for what they truly are and pursue you instead. God, I know each one of us, as we examine ourselves in the mirror, see the flaws, and we're well aware of those, God. I, I pray that this morning would not be a discouragement um, away from what you have for us, but an encouragement that you've chosen us even when we see what's in the mirror. Because you saw it and you died for us. And you chose us to be your sons and daughters. God, I pray that our character would outpace our skills, that our character would outpace any accomplishments we ever do, God, that we would be the people you've called us to be and bring much glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.